Animated Journey, a podcast featuring interviews with animation professionals working in television, film, and games. I'm your host, Angela Ensminger, and I want to give a shout out first off to Disney Television Animation and ASIFA Hollywood. Last week, they held a screening over at the ABC screening room on the second floor for Milo Murphy's Law, the brand new show that premieres on Disney XD on October 3rd, brought to you by Dan Povenmire and Jeff Swampy Marsh, the creative geniuses behind Phineas and Ferb. I'm a big Phineas and Ferb fan, so it was very cool to be able to go to the screening and to meet both of them in person and to be able to listen in on the Q&A and hear everyone's questions and just watch the show. We got to watch the very first episode. It's really good. It's really action-packed. Weird Al is the voice of the title character Milo Murphy. For all of you out there that, like me, are fans of Phineas and Ferb, you're going to really enjoy this show. It's a similar style, but it's a slightly different tone. It's a lot more action-packed. The characters are a little bit older. It was very entertaining. I had a really good time watching it. And there's Easter eggs in the show, too, for fans of Phineas and Ferb, so that was great. And I just want to give a shout-out to Dan and Swampy. They were such great guys. They're so nice. They answered everyone's questions, and at the end, you know, they took time to shake everyone's hand and take pictures. And I got to shake their hands and I got to ask them about their personal stories and about what it's like to pitch because they have pitched hundreds of shows and they have worked really hard in the industry. And as some of you might or may not know, it took about 13 years for Phineas and Ferb to get on the air. And it was just really encouraging to hear Dan talk about that. And it was really encouraging talking to Swampy as well because... He had a wide arrangement of jobs before he ever got into the animation industry. And the two of them are just so humble and they worked really hard. So special thanks to the two of you for taking the time to talk to all of us. It's really cool. So make sure to check out the show because it's a really good show and we should all support awesome animation. And speaking of supporting people and the awesome tasks that they've accomplished... I am really happy to be presenting my guest today, Elliot Min. Elliot is a super guy. He was so cool. It was a lot of fun talking with him. He's worked at a variety of gaming studios, including Harmonix and Disney Interactive. And he and his team are currently working on Cerebral, which is an independent video game that they made themselves. It's really awesome. I'll definitely leave links for everything on the website in the show notes. You guys have to check it out. It's really, really cool. And it was really cool talking with him. And it just shows the age that we live in, where if you get a group of people together, you can go out and you can make amazing things. And that's exactly what they have done. They assembled a team and they went out and they made their own game. So we talk all about that. We talk about how he got started in the industry, we talk about how he decided to build the game, different conventions that they're going to, how they're marketing it, talking to customers, talking to consumers, talking to fans, figuring out how all of that works. It is quite the journey and they are still on that journey. And so it'll be really exciting in the upcoming months and years to just track his progress and see how he's doing and see how the game takes off. So for all of you out there who aspire to create your own game or work in the video game industry and you're just wondering, how do I even do this? How does this work? This interview is for you. And so I am 
super stoked to be presenting to you episode 30 interview with Elliot Min. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another fabulous episode. My guest today is Elliot Min. Elliot is a concept artist. He has worked for a variety of studios, including Harmonix Music Systems, 38 Studios, and Disney Interactive. And currently, he and his team are working on an indie video game called Cerebral, which we're going to get into very shortly. Elliot, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh my God. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait. Let's do this. Let's do this. All right. This is going to go great. So I always like to start with origin stories, finding out where people came from, how they got to where they are. So where are you from? I'm from all over the place. I grew up in Korea. Uh, I went to school in Rhode Island. I worked in Boston. I grew up in Oregon as well. So if you want to go through the chronology, I was born in Ohio, lived in Oregon, lived in Korea, to school in Rhode Island, worked in Boston, worked in Rhode Island again, then came to Seattle. So I'm in Seattle now. Very good. And what led you to go from being in the States to going to Korea and then coming back? Mainly school. Um, Korea is a very uh, studious nation, but their education system isn't the best. And my parents wanted me to get a good education. So they sent me back to America. My dad sent me, my sisters and my mom to America to study. And then I betrayed him by going into art. <laughs> oh, no. Were they like, you know, we want you to be a, an engineer or a lawyer or a scientist? Oh, yeah. My dad, my dad is an electrical engineer. And when you he heard I wanted to be an artist, he was like, ah, ah. And I was like, yeah, sorry, dad. That is not an uncommon story. I've interviewed mm-hmm. a lot of people who had scientists or engineering parents, and that was the path they were on. And then they took that one art class and realized, oh, I'd rather do that. And their parents went, what? No, They're like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, I'm sure every artist has, well, not every, but I, I'm sure a lot of artists have that one story where they like fought with their parents epically. For me, it was like, it was like a huge deal. It was like a shouting match. It was, it was all sorts of things. Oh, God, I'm having flashbacks. <laughs> You're like, wait, wait, no. Oh, no. <laughs> so what was it that inspired you to go to art school? Was there a particular movie or show or book or something as you're growing up where you realized, oh, this is a career. This is something that adults actually do for a living. Not really. I, I there, there wasn't something that made me think in a career sense like that, but... I do remember I was in middle school. This was when I was living in Korea. And my my friend, if you've ever lived in Korea, like copied, like bootleg movies are really, really popular back in the 90s, especially. My friend got a copy of uh, Ghost in the Shell. And we were way too young to be watching that. But we watched it. And as I was watching it, I was like, oh, my God, I have to do this. Very cool. That is a very good movie. Oh, very much enjoyed that movie. One of the best. Yeah, and, and I'm talking about the uh, the original one, Mamoru Oshii, back at, back in the '90s. Oh my god, it was so good. It was that. It was probably that and Akira. I saw those, and and that's when I decided, oh my god, I want, I have to do this. This is where I'm going now. Yeah, a common thread that I've heard from a lot of people is they watched Akira and they watched Jurassic Park. And they watched a never-ending slew of Disney movies. It seems like the three of those are people's top choices for why they decided to do what they currently do. 
(laughs) Well, for me, like being in middle school, you know, generally what you think is like super cool in middle school. Once you get older, you come to appreciate Disney, more family friendly type stuff. Like when you're in middle school, you're like, oh, I want to see something edgy, something violent. Yeah. And like, it's only the past like five years or so where I'm like, oh, yeah, that Disney stuff, that stuff is dope. I love that stuff too now. I think it's just the thing of what are, you know, what are the cool kids watching or what are the older kids watching or what are adults watching? It's like, oh, they're staying up late and watching stuff with, you know, guns and sex and violence and blood. And then you get older. It's like, it doesn't all have to be guns, sex, violence and blood. It can, you know, be other things too. Yeah, happy stuff is cool too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we just I, saw we just saw Kubo and the Two Strings yesterday. And oh, then, how is I haven't gotten to see that yet. How is it? It was great. If if we want to get into the nitty gritty of the animation talk stuff, me and my friends we had this conversation about like Leica in particular, like stop motion animation. And I, I I was telling them like I wonder when they're gonna introduce like smears and doubles in like a stop motion animation. And they do that stuff in Kubo and the Two Strings, and I was super super impressed. They did a little bit of that in Paranorman as well. Oh, Not did they? a whole lot, but there's there's a couple of scenes, particularly at the end when he meets, um, oh, I forget the name of the, the little girl, Augie, I think her name is. I have to double check on that. Mm-hmm. But there's smears during the epic battle scene at the very end of the movie. Yeah. And, and that's super interesting because typically uh, smears and, and doubles, that's like a strictly 2D animation technique. To, and mm-hmm. to see it in, in like these on single frames for these 3d dolls and stuff like that it was it was crazy very good so then let's continue so you went to school at rhode island school of design how did did you choose RISD? okay so towards the end of high school my parents took me on like this college tour on the east coast we went to like harvard brown university and we did a, a quick stop by Rhode Island School of Design. And I, th- I think my mom was like, we can't have him like falling in love with this school. We're, we're going to like hurry him through it. But <laughs> maybe, maybe if we run through it, he won't see anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I have to say, it was very deceptive because it was a beautiful day that day. And if, you, if you've ever lived in Rhode Island, it is rarely beautiful. It's always like sub-zero temperatures or just blazing hot. We happened to be there on the one day where it was nice. And I was like, oh, yeah, I want to go here. This is where I want to go. But other than that, honestly, the merits of the school, I didn't look too deep into it. I remember doing an inter- internet search when I was in, in high school. I was like, top schools that animation studios look for. And like RISD was one of them. And that's probably when I decided I wanted to go there. And when you were there, did you know that you wanted to be a concept artist or did that come later? When I was in school, I actually, freshman year, I thought I was going into animation. And I remember I had a, a conversation with my dad. It was at the end of freshman year because you have to declare your major before your sophomore year. <laughs> and I remember I had this conversation and my dad was like, Elliot, animators are so poor. they're so poor and i'm like "Ah, i mean they are yeah i mean maybe he's right so i decided to get really responsible and go into comic books (laughs) yeah because comic book art that's that's where the big money is that's where the big money is comic book artists anyway like my, my dad was like more familiar with the art world in in asia and 
it seemed to him, I guess, more feasible that you can be a success as comic book artist than an animator. In in America, it's kind of the other way around. Like, yeah, I was going to say because animators but... actually get paid pretty well, especially if you're at one of the union studios. Yeah, yeah, and uh, but you know, my my dad's like perception was colored by his experience living in Korea because he he was living in Korea at the time. So I was like, I'm going to go into comics. And I was like, oh, oh, that sounds better. But I went into illustration and I was going to go into comics. Uh, I ended up doing a internship at Dark Horse Comics in Oregon, which happened oh, wow. to be like pretty close to my hometown, uh, which was perfect for me because I wanted to visit my friends during the summer. So I was uh, hanging out with high school friends and then, you know, I'd go work at Dark Horse. And towards the end of it, I had talked to them about, maybe coming on as an editor or something like that. And like a week before graduation, that kind of fell through and I kind of panicked. And my, uh, my friend, Noah, Noah Berkeley, he was working at harmonics as an animator. And he was telling me like, how about video games? You want to come into video games? We're looking for, for game testers. So I started, uh, started my career in video games as a game tester, right when they started working on rock band one they started looking for concept artists so i started schmoozing with the art team kind of you know letting people know like hey i have a a portfolio online check it out that kind of stuff and one thing led to another and i started working on the concept team and i've been in video games since that is really exciting. And that that's smart that you talked to your friends and said, hey, I'm mm-hmm. I'm going to need a job. I'm going to need assistance. Because sometimes I think people, I don't know, I, I get this impression sometimes that art students think it all has to just be me and just my <laughs> art. And it does need to be your art. You need to have good art. But if you never speak to another human being, you will not get a job. Yeah. Ever since going into the indie game development scene, I've come to realize more and more the importance of networking and it's not just i mean like your your art could be great but people want to work with people who are good to work with so just going to events and just hanging out with people letting people know that like you're not a super weirdo i mean which i am but you know i can i can fake it for a little bit but you're a friendly weirdo see yeah. it's like yeah. you can be a weirdo but you have to be a friendly at least Marginally personable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, know, let them know that I'm not, you know, I'm not going to go on a murderous rampage. And, you know, then every now and then, like, I show them my art and stuff like that. What it comes down to is when you're in art, you kind of have to be part of the community. It, it, It seems like there's less of an emphasis. People have this vision of an artist that's that's very solitary and, you know, they just work in a room all day. And, you know, there's a lot of that that you have to do, but you also have to become part of the community and trade ideas and, you know, just talk about stuff. And, and being part of that community, will it has its benefits. All right. And we will get into that, but I want to backtrack a little bit because you had mentioned your internship at Dark Horse. Mm-hmm. And I was curious how you got your internship and what you did as an intern. Oh, man. I, I don't even remember how I got that internship. I think I just I think I think just called them. I either called them or I emailed them or something. I think they had, like, internship applications on their website. The, the place is in Milwaukee, Oregon. It's in the middle of nowhere. 
So there's not a whole lot of people applying for internships there. So I think they saw one and they're like, oh, oh, sweet. Yeah, get him. <laughs> uh, my work there was, I didn't have to get coffee for anyone, but it they have a, a pretty sizable library, like an archive of all the works that they published. And it was completely unorganized. I helped them organize that. I I helped proofread some scripts uh, for, for comics and stuff like that, just grammar problems and spelling errors, stuff like that. Yeah, it, it kind of changed day by day. Uh, every day I would just go around and I'd be like, hey, guys, you need help with anything? And whatever the editors needed help with, I, I helped out with. I made a lot of copies. But yeah, nothing Very crazy. Good. But but again, it, it has to do with that networking thing. You got to let them know you're not... You're not a crazy person. Well, at least not a murderous crazy person. So, you know, you just got <laughs> to go there. Crazy, and... but friendly crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. And then once you were at Harmonix, how long did it take before you were able to transition from being a game tester to being a concept art artist? About three months. The, the thing about the video game industry, especially when you're starting out, is it's such a big risk for people to take to just hire you on as an artist. If there's any way that they can kind of know what your work ethic is and what you're like as a person at a lower cost, it's much easier for them. And I think the whole game testing thing was kind of that. They were, in fact, looking for game testers. And I, I worked hard as a game tester, but its biggest benefit was setting me up to get into the art team. And then once you're on the art team, what are some of the biggest differences that you notice between being an art student and then becoming an art professional? Let's see. What's the big difference? I mean, I remember my first year working as a professional. I loved it because when you're in school, you're constantly thinking about work. For at least a year, I, I was able to just work for eight hours and I'd come home and I would I would actually do something else. I would actually have a hobby or something. It was crazy. Those were those were good times. Other than that, like when you're in school, you can be creative in a way that can cover your flaws. Whereas when you're a professional, you there's like a higher standard that's required of you. So for example, like one of my first jobs was I had to draw orthographic drawings for 3D modelers to take. So you had to be really precise. All the silhouettes had to uh, line up correctly. So basically, I had to be a modeler before I knew how to model. And when you have to draw with that kind of precision, you can't fudge things with style. You just It, it just has to be correct. Because you do a front, side, back, and then the other side drawing, and then they would align that in 3ds Max, and they would model it based on that. So my understanding of 3D forms had to be much greater than it had to be before. Yeah, I would oh. say that that was like the biggest difference. Okay, that's good. I don't think I've heard anybody talk about that before, but that makes a lot of sense. You can't just say, oh, that's just my stylistic choice. It has to be no... This needs to actually work. Yeah. You know, people are going to mm -hmm. be playing this game. It needs to actually make some kind of sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sounds good. So you went from Harmonix to 38 Studios to Disney Interactive. And yeah. I'm curious, like, 
when you're going from different studios and working on, you know, different projects, how do you adjust as an artist to be able to work in different types of games or different styles or different types of people? Well, we, we might start going into slightly uh, sad territory, but uh, ever since I started my career, like I, I, I've always had to fake my style. Like I, if, if you've seen my work before, it's really anime. And none of the games that I worked on had that kind of style. So every studio that I went to, I, I was I was kind of prepared to change my style one way or another. But the impetus of starting to work on Cerebral kind of came from I got tired of faking my style so much. And like I started to forget what my style was. So I had to go out on my own. Uh, as far as the, the people thing goes... Most of my jobs that I got, especially all the office jobs that I got, came from uh, people who I knew who already worked there. So that part wasn't that hard, like fitting in to a place because I already would have like at least a couple friends there and then they would introduce me to different people in the company, et cetera, et cetera. And since you talked about, you know, your style being very anime and that leading to Cerebral, Let's talk about Cerebral, because I'm really excited to get into this. So how did this game come about? All right, here we go. All right, hold on. I got, I got to mentally prepare myself for this. This is going to be a roller coaster. All right. Okay, so, oh, man. This, this is going to, by the way, you, you know, in the beginning, you were asking, like, you, you were saying, like, you like to start out with an origin story. Mm-hmm. So there's, like, origin story one, which starts, you know, like, my professional career. This is the true origin story. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I remember when I was working at Harmonix, I, I had been working there for about uh, four years. You know, I was a cocky little kid. You know, I thought I was, I thought I was pretty good. I had a style that was kind of like, uh, like I was really influenced by uh, Mobius at the time and not Mobius, but yeah, Mobius as well, but Tarada. I was really into Tarada and, and I like, I had this like, drawing style that like kind of mimicked his and i'm like oh yeah i'm so sick uh but <laughs> <laughs> well, then my buddy noah the guy who got me the job in the first place he like messaged me he's like uh hey elliot check this out and i was like oh what is it and he sent me a link to this one artist named jnt at the time and now it's jnt h-e-d or jnt head and i was shocked i was disgusted i, I like i saw this and it was I, I thought it came from the future. Uh, it was so out there and it it bordered the line between modern day art, but it was for game stuff, but it was so bizarre and weird. I could see it in like a modern, like modern art museum. It was just so many different things. And I remember having to reevaluate everything. Like I, I had to be like, well... I thought I was pretty good for my age. I think I was about 25, maybe 26. And I'm like, you know, for a 20, 25, 26 year old, I'm not that bad. And then I saw this and I was like, oh man, I'm garbage. Like I'm the, <laughs> oh, no. I'm the worst. <laughs> and then I started seeing all these other artists. Like I saw Arma Eater for the first time, who now goes by Tokias Hakuba. I saw Kawayo for the first time. And Kawayo is like, if you've never seeing Kawayo's art, you should look it up right now because he is the truth. It really, really affected me. I saw Joan Pei's art for the first time. I saw all these artists who 
I felt we're like on the cusp of something new. Once you get to a, uh, once you graduate college and you go through a few art history classes and you kind of peruse what's on the internet, you kind of you kind of feel like you you know everything about what's out in the art world and you kind of feel like oh, this is where I fit in and, and you know that's cool. But I saw this new wave, this new style of art evolving, and I was like, I I want to be part of that. That's what I want to be part of. So it affected me so much that I actually quit my job because the job was getting in the way of me trying to discover my new style. So for about four months after I, I quit, like I, so there was a, about, I discovered these artists and I tried to stick with the job and, and do work outside. And I just couldn't do it. I would work 10 hours a day, I would say, and I would get home and I'd do like two hours of painting before I was like just too exhausted. I, I'd just be like, I can't do this. And then I would do that every day. And I just, I realized that between the job and trying to be a better artist, there was a part of me that wanted to be a better artist. So I quit my job. And for about four months, I did the same thing every day. I woke up, I woke up at, at nine, I got myself a coffee and a bagel and I started painting until about 7 p.m. I would get takeout from this Thai place. I would eat that and then I would paint until about 3, 4, 5 in the morning. I did that every day for four months and it was the greatest four months of my life. Like I, I discovered more about art during those four months than I did the previous 25 years of my life. I became obsessed. Even when I would go out walking, I had this little notebook that I would write down ideas and like how I would just look at things and be like, okay, so the light is bouncing from here and then it's being filtered through moist air. So it's going to give it a more of a milky look. So it, like I would just write down random stuff. Sometimes it would work. Sometimes it wouldn't work. I would try paintings every day. But like looking back now, most of them are most of them are trash, but you know, when I was doing them, I'm like, oh my God, I'm onto something. Like I'm doing something new. All right. And then I started working at 38 Studio. My buddy Devin, Devin is a, is, he is a mystical painter and he's a, he's a great dancer. He, he does house dancing and he does a uh, hustle. He does hustle with his, his girlfriend and it's awesome. Yeah. Me and Devin, we used to, uh, I used to do popping. Like I used to dance too in college and we would, uh, we would practice dancing and we would, uh, we used to be roommates. Anyway, he was like, hey, we're looking for an artist uh, over at 38. So like I, I ended up working there for a while. And I had the same struggles then too, because, you know, I'd work about eight to 10 hours a day and then come home tired and it was hard to keep going. You know, basically, I, I just worked a lot during the weekends. I, I lost a lot of friends because of that, because I just, I didn't have time to hang out with anyone. Oh man, do I regret that? I don't know. I still go back and forth on that one. Uh, Let me ask you this, because I mean, it sounds like, I mean, you were very focused and very hardcore, which is very good. I mean, your friends knew that you were focused, though, right? I mean, they knew what you were doing. It wasn't like you just never spoke to them again. Did they know what was going on? Yeah. Uh, yeah, they knew. They knew. But uh, there's a part of it that doesn't matter if they know or not. They got to live their life, too. They're, they're not going to wait on me to hang out with them. So I will say that I, I held on to the the most important ones, like the, the top 10, so to, so to speak. But I, I used to go out and hang out with people a lot. 
And after this realization, I kind of, I kind of fell off planet earth for a lot of people, but eh, I don't know. It, sacrifices, I guess, you know, you got to make them, but yeah. But af- after 38, I mean, 38 Studios was in Providence, Rhode Island, and it was great because I lived two blocks away from work. So it actually made it easier to manage my time better because I didn't have to spend an hour or two hours in commute every day. And, you know, I wouldn't be as tired when I got home. So I'd actually have more time to work and hang out with people. Not as many people, but I still hung out with people. And, you know, it was manageable. But I don't know if you know what happened to... 38 Studios, but... I don't. What what happened to 38 Studios? Oh, boy. So, those who are into, like, video game news and stuff like that will know about it, but 38 Studios was owned by uh, a baseball player named Kurt Schilling, and it was called 38 Studios because Kurt Schilling's, uh, his sports jersey number was 38, so it was named after him. He was a uh, part of the Red Sox. He was a pitcher. He was uh, famous for the bloody sock. Anyway, the studio was getting government-funded money from the state of Rhode Island. And things got political. Long story short, there was a governor who was trying to sabotage the company because, you know, it was government-funded money, so that can happen. And it did. And about 250, 300 people came to work one day and said, "Uh, where's our paycheck? <laughs> and uh yeah, it was huge it was a huge debacle. Newscasters everywhere. It was uh it was kind of crazy. Oh man. Eventually one of my friends I got in touch with, he was living in Seattle working at the Bellevue Disney studio, and I was like, Hey man, uh, I need a job. <laughs> you guys got one out there? And he was like, Yeah, 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 come out here. And I was like, Alright, sweet. So I moved to Seattle. I gotta say. If you're into independent comics or independent games, Seattle is the place to be, especially for indie games, I think, because the cost of living is lower than San Francisco. So there's a lot of tech people here with not as much high rent that they have to pay, so they're willing to take more risks. And that's when I met Aaron, Aaron Oak. He's currently my partner at Zero Dimension. We're working on Cerebral, but I worked at... Disney for like three years and I was uh, I was saving up as much money as I could because I knew I was getting older I was I was about 29 turning 30 I think I thought to myself like well I I've always had to work in a western style and I I don't I don't hate it but I don't I don't get that much nourishment if I may from it like it's just something it's just a job at that point and i i wanted to do my important work so to speak i wanted to have my magnum opus and i was saving up money because i knew that the disney job was probably gonna be the last one for a while at least I had two dreams. Ever since I was 15, I wanted to make a fighting game or I wanted to make comic books. So up until the very last day at Disney, I wasn't sure which one I was going to go to. I knew that if I was going to go towards the fighting game route, that's something I just can't do alone. Whereas the comic book thing I can do alone, 
And I was I was thinking like, oh, I'll probably go into comic books. And then on the last day, I was hanging out with Aaron, and he was like, oh, where are you going? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I'm, I might make comic books or, I don't know. I, I had this idea for a fighting game. I might do that. And he was like, oh, cool, cool. Uh, fighting games, huh? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, fighting games are cool. And then there was like this pause. And I was like, you want to make a fighting game? Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, I do. Like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. So that that's kind of how it happened. Just I make these really brash life decisions on really ridiculous whims sometimes. And this was no exception. So he said yes. And I was like, all right, I guess we're making a fighting game then. So actually, so I took an animation class when I was in high school. It was a flash animation class. And it wasn't until it wasn't until Cerebral started that I started animating. Like Cerebral was my first animation project since high school. It, it had been a while. Yeah. Did it all? Did all the information come flooding back to you, or was it more of no? Vague... <laughs> no, nope, I don't remember no. this at all. We need I don't to remember anything. <laughs> Especially because, like, I tried uh, when we were prototyping the game. I remember. Well, what's my art flow going to be like? What? software am I going to use and stuff like that. I tried Flash. Uh, it, you, you've interviewed uh, Margie and uh, uh, Alex, yes. right? And I had kept in touch with them and, uh, and you know, they were giving me tips and stuff like that on how to use Flash for animation and stuff like that. And I remember I remember I finished like an idle animation and I immediately said, yeah, we're not doing that. That's ridiculous. Because every, everything in Flash is just, there's so many layers that you have to, of the program itself that you have to get through to get to the meat and potatoes of animating, if that makes sense. Like you have to crack open symbols within symbols and you have to animate this part and connect it to another thing. Like there's all this stuff. Vectorized animation would have been great for this game, but I, it was just, it wasn't worth it. Like the workflow would have been way too slow. So we ended up going with Photoshop, but I remember when we started production on Cerebral, I downloaded a ton of 2D fighting game sprite sheets and I would just study them. Or I still watched a lot of anime and, you know, hanging out with Noah, like Noah's coming up again, but we we would, you know, watch a lot of anime and we would do frame by frames of how they're doing certain things. Even though I didn't ever put them into practice, that kind of stuff started to bubble up again. And I was like, oh yeah, I remember like there's I can do like smears and doubles and, you know, like one thing that uh, I realized very early that was very, very useful was um, limited animation is the bee's knees. Like the more animation I do, the more I lean more and more towards limited animation because there are certain things that you can do in limited animation that you just can't do animating like doing a new drawing every 30th of a second or 24th second, that has its good parts, but there's things you just can't do in that format. I guess I started to enjoy the creativity that goes into deciding how long a drawing is going to stay on screen. There's a creativity in that that's really fun and satisfying. Whereas if every drawing stayed on screen the same amount of time it just wouldn't be as fun 
Well, it adds variety. Yeah. You know, it adds variety and changes up the timing and the tempo and the pace and the emotion of it. If it's everything is the same, it mm-hmm. gets into this weird lull where you're just kind of like, all right, this mm-hmm. is what's going on. But if you have, you know, some motions are quick and some are slow. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like live action filmmaking is the same thing. I mean, you have scenes that are slower and scenes that are faster. And that's mm-hmm. on purpose. Yeah, frame modulation. If you guys are animators out there and you don't know what frame modulation is, look it up. It's super fun. Fun and entertaining. Yes. All right. So you're working on Cerebral. So how did you and Aaron, how did you guys decide this is the, I mean, you you knew you wanted to do a fighting game. You knew you wanted to do an anime style. How did you come up with the story and the idea for the game? I had this story for a comic. If you go to niwindustries.com, if you go to my website, there's a download link to a PDF to the comic that I made. It's really bad. <laughs> it's really bad. I love that I finished it, but I'm not in love with it. But I remember I did, like, I wrote down a ton of story, like backstory for this 40-page action comic that has like 10 lines of dialogue in it. But there's this weird world that I, I, I've been like building up. And I, 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 want, I knew I wanted the game to be set in that world. So that's where we started. And from there, we once the game started being made and we started putting stuff on the net, the overwhelming question that we got was, well, what's the story? Which was shocking to me because I, I used to play Street Fighter in tournaments and stuff like that. And we never, ever talked about what the story of a fighting game was. But everyone who was finding out about Cerebral, they wanted to know what the story was. So I... I kind of had to come up with something on the fly. Like once the fifth person asked, I, I kind of panicked and I was like, well, well, this is happening. Ah! And that's, that's kind of what stuck. All right. And for those who haven't seen the game yet, what is the story of Cerebral? The story of Cerebral is, is set in Harmon City and something called an imagination bomb explodes at the center of the city. When that happens, everyone who is in the blast radius, their imagination starts to starts to spill into reality. And as these different imaginations collide with each other, everyone gets sent out to a pocket dimension of their own and they get to live in their ideal world. And as those dimensions start collapsing back down into reality, people have to fight for real estate so that their ideal world can take place in this world. Fascinating. And By the way, I, that, was a, that was, I've never been able to explain the story that well. Like, oh. I'm, I'm so proud we got that on, on tape. Well, you hear it here first, folks. It is now on record. Elliot's elevator <laughs> pitch. Uh-huh. Take it to the major studios and blast that all over your website. That's great. Yeah, let's I'm make the cerebral to... anime, guys. Let's do That's it. That's right. Now, <laughs> let me ask you this. Story now is very important for gamers and in games, mm-hmm. more so than it used to be. Why do you think that is? Like, where do you think that shift comes from? Man, that is a fantastic question that I don't really have a great answer for. I mean, part of it must have to do with capability. In the Pong era, it doesn't matter how much story you have in in mind. There's just only so much that you can convey. Whereas technology is at a level in games that you could add all sorts of story. And once one game did it, then it became an expectation for all other games, is my guess. But then again, 
on the consumer side, they probably find great value in story because it's it's a connection point for them to be involved in that world. They can kind of feel the feelings that the characters in that world feels and that kind of puts them in that world. I don't know. I'm kind of I'm kind of guessing at this point. I was just curious because I've noticed that like when I was little, there was a story, but it wasn't much. You know, it was like yeah. Mario and Luigi are in this weird land and mm-hmm. they have to save the princess from this weird dinosaur alligator turtle creature <laughs> the end i mean it's there was a story but it was very basic and then it became you know final fantasy with these epic things and then doom with these epic things and now there's overwatch where there's videos on every character so it's yeah, just yeah, yeah. it's kind of metastasized into you know there's all i mean more so there's just as much story for games as there is for movies now yeah it is and that's, it is. And that's not a that's not how it was. And so I was just curious, yeah. like from a, you know, from a gamer's perspective, why you thought I, that was. I also feel like games probably can take their time more once the birth of the home consoles started to boom. Cause I, I mean, I come from like an arcade era back when I lived in Korea, you know, me and my friends, like I didn't have, well, what was big back then? Like a Sega Genesis. Yeah. I think Genesis was big back then, but Genesis and uh, what's the one afterwards? Saturn, Sega Saturn. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any of those. So all the games that I played were in arcades. And when you're in an arcade setting, arcades, they, you know, they want you to spend money. So they don't want to inundate you with story and stuff like that. So a lot of story wasn't in there. But once once like PlayStation 2 came out and, you know, the home consoles really exploded, I think that's when game developers really started to concentrate more on stories because the format allowed them to take their time with that kind of stuff. So they did. That's my guess. My theory. I like your theory. We're going to go with that theory. And I want to ask you too. So how does one go about creating an indie game? What are, you know, what are the steps to even having that become a reality? I would say it requires a long enough career beforehand that you have picked up enough skills and at least have an understanding of how other disciplines work during my career i kind of bounced around as far as career goes because most artists who go into video games they let's say they become a character modeler then they'll be a character modeler for the rest of their career i kind of wasn't sure what i wanted to do so i went from concept artist to character modeler. I was in the tech art department for a while too. I was on the web team for a bit at some point and I became an environment artist and then I became an outsource manager of sorts. I kind of did a little bit of everything which gave me enough knowledge in enough different things that I had the confidence that I could do it. And after that, you have to know, you got to have talented people who are willing to take a risk with you. I would say having a team is the most important. And then having, actually, you know what? If you have the skills, it probably convinces other people to join you. So yeah, get good and then find a team that's also good. That's probably the most important thing. I also have a, a, a enough savings that'll allow you to coast for a while 
that helps, especially if you're on the art team. Because art, art is probably one of the more time-consuming aspects of independent game development at this point. I mean, there's so many different engines out there that are available to you that forego a lot of the, the, the work that a coding team would have to do. So having a, a, enough money to be able to do it full-time for a while is probably important, especially if you're making a, a 2D fighting game because, oh my God, the amount of work that is involved is however much you think it is, you should square that because it's about that much. <laughs> so it's like, I don't only take this amount of time. It's like, no, no. Oh, oh, oh my God. When, when we first started the project, I was, I was hanging out with Aaron and he was like, all right, we, we got to schedule this thing out. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, uh, how much do you think, how long do you think it's going to take to finish one character? And I was like, uh, I don't know, three months? I think three months. Uh, we still haven't finished the first character. It's been a year and a half. So that's something he reminds me all the time. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. I get it. It's like, thank you. Thank you for yeah, correcting yeah. me, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we get it. You were right. He's like, I just want to make sure that you know that uh -huh. I know what I originally said. <laughs> yes. Yes. We all know, Aaron. Yeah. Speaking of, you mentioned having a good team. How did you and Aaron find the other members of your team? Aaron is a magical unicorn who seems to know everyone. So it was mostly his, thanks to him. The only person that I brought onto the team was a guy, Wilson Furman. He used to go by Ill Will. He was known as the last boss of, of uh, New England. He was known uh, as that because he was so good at fighting games that nobody could beat him. This was when I lived in Massachusetts. We would go to tournaments together and he would just he would just get drunk and just beat everyone. And then he would, <laughs> he would leave with the tournament money. So I saw that and I was like, I got to work with that guy at some point. So it's got to be tough for people too going against going, not only did I get beat, I got beat by a guy that's drunk. Oh man. Yeah. He was so good. <laughs> he was so good. But I remember when we started the project, I just messaged him. I was like, hey, man, you want to make a fighting game? I had to romance him a little bit. He, he wasn't so easy to convince. He was like, ah, I don't know, man. I'm busy. But, you know, you got to be persistent and you'll get the date, right? So <laughs> other than him, everyone else Aaron knew. We have two amazing coders who are brothers, Yusuke Tsutsumi and Koji Tsutsumi. Yusuke went to high school with Aaron or something like that. Something like that. And we had this amazing musician named Tumelo. He did this incredible mashup album called Chrono Jigga, where they took Chrono Trigger music and mixed it with Jay-Z lyrics, which I thought was genius. If you, if you ever get a chance, you should listen to it. He also did this awesome Three Six Chambers, and they took, he took beats from Final Fantasy III and Final Fantasy VI and mixed it with the Wu-Tang Clan. Genius album. I thought I would never meet this guy. And Aaron was like, oh, yeah, I know that guy. He's doing the music for this game. And I was like, what? Bring him on. And then, well, we got him. That's our team. Six, six people. Yeah, we got Melo, Yusuke. We have uh, Koji, Wilson, me. We have we, uh, my, friend, uh, my friend Leo. He might be joining us soon, but he's having a kid. He might be busy. I heard they take a lot of time. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. How, how do you get a good team? Part of it's luck, I guess. And go to your local indie game dev meetups. 
because you never know who you'll meet there. I met some cool people. I met Derek there. Derek works at Studio Atma, which is another independent game dev studio. They, they're making a JRPG called Gravistar. And they're all super cool people. I met them at game dev meetups. Networking and luck is what it takes. And a good judge of character, which I don't have, but Aaron does. So <laughs> why, why do you say you don't have a good judge of character? I don't know. I just, I hang out with a lot of, uh, I hang out with a lot of shady characters. <laughs> so uh, but, like, but, good for friends, but not so much a, a fellow uh, co-workers, eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Super, super fun people to hang out with. But yeah, Aaron, for some reason, knows everyone worth knowing. I don't know why. But it's good that he does. So that actually gets into, you know, you talked about networking, meeting people, putting together a team. Mm -hmm. So y'all put together your characters, your world, your prototype for the game. How did you inform people that your game existed? so that they knew to come to you to play it. That is the hard part. And it's actually what we're kind of struggling with at the moment. Marketing is probably our biggest challenge at the moment, mostly because we don't have a budget for marketing. Uh, you know, we do the Twitter thing. We live stream twice a week just so people can watch us work. We had this, it's some kind of tweet blasting service where you sign up to tweet at the same time. It's like crowdfunding, but there's no cost. You just sign up and you allow this service to tweet through you. Tweet or like put out a Tumblr post or a Facebook post for you. Okay. I forget what thing it was, but we signed up to do that. Most of our followers came from that because it makes everyone post at the same time. So the impact is larger. You can make something trend with not that many, not that much activity as long as it all happens at once. Mm -hmm. So we use that. Other than that, I don't know. Do you have any marketing tips? <laughs> well, I was wondering because you guys, I saw on your site that you went to CTN last year. Mm. Have you been to any other conventions? Like, have you all been to, you know, E3 or GDC or PAX or any of those places? I mean, we go to those things, but mo mainly to network. We haven't had, I mean, because having a booth there is so, it's so expensive. We tried to apply for the Seattle Indie Expo. We didn't get in, sadly. But, but yeah, we'll be going around PAX West and we'll probably be trying to promote our game. Uh, we'll probably bring a builder of the game and try to talk to um, publishers. That's good. And I was, I was wondering, too, because it sounds like, I mean, you guys go to a lot of, you know, indie development meetups and whatnot. Have you all had a chance to sit down with other people who've developed indie games and had a chance to pick their brains and find out what they did? Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, like I said before, Studio Out, my guys, they're awesome people. We hang out every now and then. There are a few studios that I know their name. Taylor Beely, he's a cool guy. We hung out with him a few times. We would live cast Street Fighter matches every now and then. That was fun. But off camera, we would talk about like our challenges and how to overcome certain aspects of game development. But yeah, I, I think the overall difficult thing is, in fact, marketing. Because a lot of game devs, they're very creative people and they can be very talented at what they do. Connecting and understanding other people can often be a challenge for artists and coders alike. So 
it seems that in the indie game sphere, a lot of times that's where they struggle. I'm wondering, this might already exist, but if it doesn't, someone should do a marketing for indie developers class or like reaching out to your audience like 10 steps to better communicate with your audience because that sounds like that would be great especially for artists because a lot not everybody Mm -hmm. but a lot of artists are introverts a lot of the reason that's how a lot of people got into art was i don't want to be out there with everybody else i'd rather be in my own little universe creating Mm -hmm. my own thing which is helpful to get you to get really good at the craft. But then when you have to start talking to people, it becomes, oh, wait, shoot. Now I have to go speak to other humans. What do I do? <laughs> so it would be good if there were some kind of, hey, artists, here's a communication class for artists. Yep. Marketing yep. Uh, for artists. Although if you go to enough uh, indie game dev events, you kind of you kind of get the hang of it, I guess. But I'm still notoriously bad at talking about my own project. I don't know why. I can make dick and fart jokes for like hours on end. <laughs> but like if if it comes to talking about what I spend most of my time on, I just I just clam up. I don't understand it. But yeah. If you find that class, send me an email, please. Oh man, I will be sending EdSense emails to so many people like, guess what I found? <laughs> the secret. Here it is. Go mm-hmm. sign up. And actually, that brings me to my next question, because you guys had an episode of your podcast on the Cerebral website where you talked about how you essentially had to come up with two different sales pitches for the game. Yes. And I was wondering, what are those two sales pitches that you came up with? So fighting games are interesting. There's always two types of people who buy fighting games there's the people who who buy it because it looks cool and it plays fun and then there's a a crowd of people who really 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 dissect the game and they they're probably going to go to tournaments they probably watch tournament footage they probably know at least a little bit of frame data like they know how many frames it takes for a move to come out and stuff like that. And because there's this, there's two groups, there's the normal human crowd. And then there's the, the really, really hardcore people. So if you talk to a really hardcore person, like they're a completely casual person, you're telling them the wrong stuff. They want to know the in-depth stuff because that's what, where they have fun. But if you tell a casual person the really hardcore in-depth features, they simply won't understand. So what we found was our biggest challenge at conventions was how do we know who we're talking to and what do we say to them once we do? So we had to come up with two pitches. One of them is more like, what makes the game fun? What makes it Obviously different from other fighting games. So Cerebral is a four-player, team-based fighting game. So if we say that, for most people, they're like, oh, that sounds like fun. But if you're super, super, super hardcore about it, they want to know, well, what kind of resource management are we going to be doing? Is there a different meter for like assist calls? Once that meter builds, what, what are the benefits? Like, How are you balancing? Like a four-character fighting game is harder to balance than a two-character fighting game. Like, how how is that going to work? What are the limiting factors? Stuff like that. So 
we had a uh, workshop session between the designer, me, and Aaron, because Aaron is the one who talks to the general public the most. So we tried to come up with two different pitches, one for people who have a general understanding of fighting games and one who have a very specific knowledge of fighting games. That makes a lot of sense. And that's it's kind of like like what you said for the casual person and for the hardcore person. Because I could, I hear what you're saying there, because I would definitely put myself in the casual range because talk about, oh, it does this. Oh, that sounds great. You start talking about the other stuff, you're like, ah, okay, that's really interesting. What does <laughs> uh -huh. that mean? <laughs> yeah, and the devil is in the detail for some people. And if you know who you're talking to, you can, that's where they're going to find the fun is, is in like the tiny, minute details that most people probably won't even perceive. So it's almost like they, they speak different languages and you, you just got to, you, you got to figure out who you're talking to and you got to, you got to let them know that what they like is in the game. And that's because we're not marketing people. It's very difficult for us. All right, so you're you're learning on the fly, discovering how it goes. And I'm curious too, what have been some of the unexpected great parts of creating your own game? I mean, you guys went into it thinking, you know, this will be fun, it'll be really tough, but it'll be cool. What are some things that have happened that you weren't expecting that ended up being even better than you thought? That's a tough one. I mean, one one thing is like I thought I thought Cerebral was a relatively unknown project and it in the grand scheme of things it's it's still a pretty uh, unknown project but i've found that it's been much easier to find freelance work more in the vein of what i want to do once i started cerebral because i can tell someone like oh hey i work on cerebral i'm looking for freelance and they'll be like oh they know exactly what to expect they know what my capabilities are because they've at least seen it and without putting down my own project too much, it's a great portfolio piece. <laughs> so yeah, it's a great way to, to show people what my capabilities are. So I'll go with that one. I can't, Hmm. Greater than I thought it would be. It's surely not the money. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, is it satisfying? Yeah, it is satisfying, but Oh, Oh my God. It's so much work. How much time do you have a, a set number every week of like how many hours you're working on your game, how many hours you're able to freelance, how many hours you're able to just spend with, you know, family and friends? Do you kind of have that balanced out or is it more of, nope, it's mainly the game and then whatever other time I have, I use that for me, but it's just mainly the game. Uh, so the first year that I worked on Cerebral, I was really, really bad at managing my time. It was usually like work 16 hours and then go to sleep, wake up and do it again. Someone calls me. I'm like, leave me alone. I'm working. <laughs> but I'm still not great at it, but I've gotten much better about it. Right now, like I, I write a lot of things down. Uh, recently, we started using a program called uh, Jira. It's like a task tracking system. Ever since we started using that, I find it much easier to manage my time. But mainly, I I try to at least spend an hour a day to just not be in front of my desk. 
I've been walking a lot more and I'm like way less miserable. (laughs) (laughs) It's like outdoor activity. It's like, Hey, I'm back ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I went kayaking the other day. It's awesome. If you ever get a chance to go kayaking, you should do it. I've done it once and it was very fun. So I I concur with that statement. Kayaking Mm -hmm. is, is great. Everyone should try it. Yes. Just to be outside. It's just nice. It's nice being outdoors in the sun and right? not being in front of the screen and not being on a phone and uh-huh. just outside. Yes. Yes. Uh, no matter how much you want to sp- spend time indoors, humans are part of nature. So you should go experience it. Absolutely. And so you mentioned, you know, taking time out at least an hour a day being outside. You also have... A great deal of personal work that is very good. And you're on oh, thank you. all of social media, which is very impressive because I've met a lot of artists that are fantastic and they, they've got nothing. I'm like, no, you got you to gotta put yourself out there. So <laughs> you're out there, which is really cool. You have a store on Society6 and it's called the NIW Industries. And I was wondering where you got the name for oh. that because that is a, a very cool name. Oh, thank you. So if you take my last name and you look at it upside down, it says NIW nice <laughs> i thought it was pretty clever that is very clever although someone told me like you should go on with m industries and i and i just i just i was so disgusted with myself that i didn't take that <laughs> m industries m industries <sighs> that would have been so good m industries i yeah. like niw i think niw niw works really well oh, oh well thanks uh but yeah um the whole social media thing it's kind of it's kind of something I do out of desperation. I just, I've been wanting to be internet famous for so long and it's just, it's just not working. It's just, <laughs> I just plaster everything. Although someone told me I need to be on CG Hub, so I got to start a CG Hub uh, account soon too. But I'm on, yeah, I'm on everything. Come find me on uh, Twitter, Tumblr, uh, Instagram. I don't have a Facebook page. I should probably start that. And I have a DeviantArt. yes. Buy my stuff on, on Society6. Hey, get out there. There you go. Maybe mm-hmm. if you had a YouTube channel too, because I notice a lot of artists do, here's how I create my art, or here are my fun you you know how-to videos, or here I am talking with this person. Like maybe <laughs> if you added that to your arsenal. I've you thought know. of that, but just editing, I'd have to learn how to edit. It would take super long. I We archive some of our shows on the Cerebral uh, YouTube channel, maybe. Maybe I can link to that. I don't know. I get so embarrassed about my own voice that I have a hard time promoting it. I mean, you, you've you've recorded several episodes of this podcast at this point. Do you ever do you ever go back listen to your own voice and you're like, ugh, why do I sound like that? Because for me, it's like that every time. I would say uh, the first six episodes, I was horribly nervous <laughs> about doing this and it's uh-huh. funny because i used to i used to work at an audio recording studio when mm-hmm. i was in art school and after work i would record audiobooks mm-hmm. and that helped a lot because mm-hmm. how you sound to you versus how you sound in a recording you know is very different because when you speak you're you're hearing your voice filtered through you know, the bones and the muscles and all the yep. cells in your head. So you're not sounding how you think you sound. And so it's really bizarre when you first listen to yourself because it's like, whoa, what is 
what is that? <laughs> so the first couple episodes, I just remember thinking, man, I hope I sound okay. You know, I hope I sound intelligible and intelligent and that I'm asking good questions and that there are not weird, uncomfortable pauses. Yeah, because so, in my head, I sound like Morgan Freeman. I sound I amazing <laughs> in my head. And then I hear it, and I'm like, oh, man, no. Yeah. I would no. say it's just like putting your art online. You know, the first couple of times you do it, you're like, oh, man, I don't know how this is going to go. Maybe <laughs> I shouldn't do this. But it's, uh -huh. it's, a, it's a repetition. Mm. The more you do it, the more comfortable it gets. And even if it doesn't get comfortable, you get so used to doing it that you're just like, well, all right, here it is. I have a limited amount of time, a uh -huh. limited amount of time that I could edit. I have to go to work. I have to work on this project or I have to go do something else. All right, mm -hmm. world, there you go. <laughs> Done. Yep. And you can take solace in the fact that, honestly, most of the people online, I've gotten very positive comments and reviews from my fans. Love my fans. Thank you very much. But not everybody has gotten that. You know, people get negative reviews all the oh time. It's God. the internet. But the thing is, the people that give the harshest critiques and reviews, they're creating nothing. <laughs> they're not making anything. Mm -hmm. They're just crapping on everybody. Mm -hmm. And if they were actually creating something they would realize, oh, this is really hard. Maybe I should be a human and not be so cruel <laughs> because you're criticizing something that's free. It doesn't make any sense at all. Uh -huh. Looking at you, YouTube reviewers. So <laughs> if a YouTube channel or whatever other outlet you want to do, if that's in the cards, if that's what you want to do, Elliot, just do it. Uh, just do it and people will either like it or they won't like it, but you can say, hey, I did it. I tried something. Yeah, I should just do it. <laughs> I should. I probably should. And you and your team are already doing something. I mean, you guys made a game. Not How yet. many people can say, mm -hmm. we made a game? That's very intense. Well, thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So, and it's in the prototype stage. Is that correct? Or are you guys... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you buy our prototype, you'll get a build every other week. And you could come to our Discord chat room. You can... You can uh, call us stupid. Oh, don't call <laughs> can, them stupid yeah, people. They worked yeah. really hard. <laughs> uh, you, you can get feedback on the prototype that you play, and we, we read all the messages. So you can have your influence on the game really early on, and we're trying to make something, something cool and something unique. So we need your input. What are the most helpful comments that you've received from people? Uh, we have a new bug reporting system. <laughs> people send us the bugs like the game crashing bugs, and we're like, oh, thank you. We needed to know this. We applied to uh, Seattle Indie Expo, also known as Six. When we got rejected, all six of the panel members sent us page-long feedback notes, and that was super, super helpful. We actually uh, redirected our uh, development direction based on that. And um, basically they said, we understand that you can make a really good-looking game. We need to see more features, so... That's where we're going. We're trying to put in as many features in as we need to. That's fantastic that they mm -hmm. gave you that feedback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was awesome. What words of wisdom do you have for concept artists, especially artists who want to create their own indie game? If you're a concept artist and you want to make indie games, you probably don't want to hear this, but learn something that's not concept art. Because at the indie game level... Everyone needs to be at a productive enough level that they're worth having there. And 
frankly, with a team that's like five people, a concept artist position just isn't that important. So you have to learn how to do other things. That is solid advice. And Elliot, you have been very generous with your time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed talking with you today. Oh, thank you for having me. I had a lot of fun. And that concludes my interview with Elliot. Special thanks again to Elliot Min for being such a wonderful guest. Really enjoyed talking with you. And make sure to check out all of his personal links as well as the links to Cerebral in the show notes and the website. You guys are really going to want to check out this game. It's really cool. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, please make sure to leave a review in iTunes. All of your reviews help more and more people to find out about the show. And thank you so much to everyone who has left a review. I really appreciate it. And if you would like to support the show, you can visit www.theanimatedjourney.com and click on the PayPal button on the right-hand side. Every little bit helps me to keep the show up and running with hosting costs, technical costs, all of those wonderful costs that go into creating a podcast. And thank you to everyone who has donated to the show. I really appreciate it. It means a great deal to me. And you can also support the show by supporting the show's sponsors, Amazon, Audible, Loot Crate, and Blueberry Podcast Hosting. Amazon, of course, is your place to go for everything under the sun. Audible is the best place on earth to find wonderful audiobooks. Loot Crate is where you want to get all that fantastic geek and gaming gear, t-shirts, keychains, hats, and mugs. And when you click on the right-hand side and type in the code LOOTER3, you get a $3 discount. So make sure to take advantage of that offer. And then, of course, there's Blueberry Podcast Hosting. If you want to do what I'm doing, if you want to create your own show, I say do it. Go and make a thing. It is super, super fun. And I also just want to leave a special message for everybody. I have really enjoyed making this show. I'm having a blast. And I get wonderful emails and tweets and Facebook messages and Instagram messages from people. So I just want to say thank you to everyone who has listened to the show, to everyone who has referred the show to friends. It means a great deal to me. It really, really does. And I am excited for the future. So I just want to let everyone know I'm going to be taking the month of October off. I have some personal projects that I'm currently working on that I need to get finished. So the show will return for more exciting episodes on Tuesday, November 1st. So make sure to check out the website, check out the Facebook page and Twitter. I'll still be posting news about animation and what's going on and all of those good things. And then in November, you'll be able to listen to all new episodes of the show. I'm really excited for what's coming down the pipe. I know that all of you out there will enjoy hearing all of the new episodes as well. And I just want to say thank you to everyone who has listened. It means a great deal to me. And make sure to follow the various social media websites for the podcast by visiting www.theanimatedjourney.com. On Facebook, it's www.facebook.com slash theanimatedjourney. On Tumblr, it's theanimatedjourney.tumblr.com. And on Instagram and Twitter, the handle is at animjourney. And you can check out what I've been working on by visiting www.sketchysoul.com. On Tumblr, it's sketchysoul.tumblr.com. I have a new Facebook page, facebook.com slash sketchysoul. On Twitter, the handle is at sketchysoul. And on Instagram, the handle is at sketchy 
underscore soul. So tune in in November for all new episodes. And as always, be encouraged and have a great day, everybody.